This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. Uh, my name is Julia Kublinska. I'm your host today, and my guest is uh, Professor Xiaoling Ma, who is a professor at um, Yale NUS College. Um, Xiaoling was born in Taiwan, grew up in Singapore, and spent the last 10 years in the United States at the University of Southern California, where she got her PhD in comparative literature. Um, she subsequently taught at Penn, uh, Pennsylvania State University, um, and her research uh, interests include literary and critical theory, media studies, and global Chinese literature, film, and art, um, which indeed is the purview of her new book, The Stone and the Wireless, Mediating China, 1861 to 1906, published uh, just this past year by Duke, um, and the subject of our interview today. Uh, so good evening, <laughs> Xiaoling. It's very nice to talk to you um, so far away in Singapore. <laughs> Good morning, Julia. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I will start with a very traditional question for the New Books Network, which will be, how did you get your start in Chinese studies and Chinese media studies? What brought you to this field? Thank you. It was a very, very winding road. Um, I went to grad school from Singapore having really set on working with Peggy Kamuf, who was still my dissertation advisor. Um, and I was going to specialize in Derrida and French theory and continental philosophy all the way. Um, around the time of my calls, you know, um, Peggy, with much foresight and I guess confidence, you know, um, suggested that I think about really working on a kind of a comparative uh, Chinese angle into my project. So um, despite being fluent in Chinese and um, obviously interested in it, I did not anticipate that that was going to be my field actually. And my dissertation was really a comparative study of American and Chinese utopian fiction. Um, so I ended up, you know, 
taking out the whole U.S. section and keeping maybe 15% of the book, I would say, um, which would be the two chapters that actually talked about the late Qing sci-fi and rewrote the whole thing in my second job, which was here at Yale and U.S. College. So um, media came into the picture only in the last four years, you know, as I was really writing the manuscript. Um, and I, you know, I think it's really realizing that I was talking about science and technology, but also realizing that STS, um, the field that I was reading, wasn't quite the kind of theory I wanted to work with. And then um, falling in love with um, media theory as a whole and decided to kind of uh, reverse engineer and everything and think through my subject matter through media. So, yeah, it was a very, very long (laughs) winding road, I must say. Um, Yeah, and um, glad to be near the end of it or rather see where the next one leads. In line with what you just said, I wonder who are some of your interlocutors um, who brought you or perhaps uh, showed a a certain approach that you have now also contributed to in how to bring together media theory and Chinese studies, which is indeed one of the central questions that you address in the introduction to your book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Having really have my start with late Qing science fiction, so I would guess the whole... um, the whole field of New Qing history played a role and the whole field of um, science fiction studies in China were my first really, you know, important teachers. So Ted Hughes, David Wong, um, including Ted's student, Nathanael, um, kind of the UCLA, kind of um, USC um, crowd that I was um kind of uh, attending grad school with and including the kind of rather tangential but very important field of um, Sinophone studies that was really on the rise as I was writing the dissertation. So all those gave me a good foundation, I think, with the primary sources in terms of um, learning about the late Qing, in terms of learning about science fiction, but also the new fiction in the late Qing. And as I got further into the subject and I decided to really focus the entire project on um, the late Qing itself, as well as on science, but also really media more broadly, I was obviously really um, engaging with the scholarship of media theorists like Alex Galloway and uh, Seb Franklin and a lot of the kind of very critical um, readings of media that um, really took materiality as part of the problem, but also all the while, while, you know, valorizing language and discourse. So um, the kind of German field of media studies with Stickler, and I would say um, with Galloway or what they call the kind of more New York school, if you want to put schools in that, um, they were really important for me. And of course, you know, um, no media scholar or study can, um, 
write a book without you know the the work of cinema scholars. So, um, in the field of Chinese scholars, I mean Chinese studies, cinema is such a rich field. I can only name um, a few, but you know someone like um, uh, Bao Weihong's Fiery Cinema, whom I'm sure you know very well, was very very influential. And Andrew Jones as well, um, who you mentioned earlier in our conversation. So uh, I think all these different strengths um, come together. But interestingly, when I think back, I feel like the writing process was very much punctuated in addition to um, Chinese historians and Chinese cultural studies, as well as media scholars and cinema scholars, by the field of affect um, studies. And even though affect is only, I would say, features quite minorly in about chapter three um, of the book. I feel like the way that affect studies and affect um, scholars who work on affect approach their subject matter and really kind of take a very eminent approach to integrating their um, methodology with their object of study was very, made a profound impact. So I remember towards the end, as I was rewriting and rewriting the introduction, um, among the many books I keep rereading was also um, Eugenia Brinkman's um, The Form of Affects. And, you know, um, she, 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 her work is entirely not in Chinese studies, but it just shows that one does not really follow just, uh, you know, um, one strict field. I think that was definitely one um, important lesson I learned. Oh, um, and I was very much taken by media archaeology and media history as well. So uh, Lissel Geiteman's work was uh, very foundational, as well as Jonathan Stern. So again, people who work in the Anglophone area or a later period in time or a different period in time were definitely um, people I had in mind as I was writing the book as well. Wonderful. And um, as you mentioned, I mean, your book uh, came together through the influence of these many fields, and that's also uh, the the territory that you navigate in the introduction. So perhaps we can move into the discussion of the book proper. Um, And I'd like to ask you, um, you know, perhaps through a kind of narrative of how this introduction came to be to highlight for us, um, you know, what is your intervention into the fields that you describe? And what are the important um, terms for you. Uh, you. You know, you have a definition of mediation that you really emphasize throughout the book. So perhaps you could share that with us and how how that definition, as I said, intervenes into the discussions that you see yourself participating in. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, the introduction, I mean, God knows how many different drafts of it, you know, came through or, or were discarded. And I feel like um the writing process is really key when one writes for different audiences through the period and realize and finally find you know uh, the authorial voice for writing for different audiences. So for me, the introduction came together while having 
um, send out book proposals, right? And we all know that awkward genre where you're putting yourself out there and really, really hoping that it will, you know, strike a note in um, the editor who's reading it. So it uh, for me, the introduction was helpful after the book proposals and after kind of uh, manuscript workshops. And as we always tell students or, or often tell students when you're stuck about where to start, maybe start with a quote, right? And I think I started with Li Gui's um the customs clerk who visited the 1876 centennial exhibition and wrote about the machines and the kind of awe that they impressed upon him. And I kind of just had the intuitive um, impulse to follow his quote precisely because there was no outward mention of media in what he was writing about. And that struck a note because it kept on happening in many of the um, late Qing newspaper articles that I was looking at and also the um, late Qing novels that eventually made their way into the book. And I think the question of how and why am I writing a media studies book when the concept of media, or at least the term, has yet emerged? at the period of time in China. So I think having kind of led myself on that question, I was um, able to begin with um, what exactly I mean by the term media. Was it just a translation issue or am I dealing with a very conceptual kind of enigma as well. And so from Li Gui's quote, I think, um, and from the kind of uh, research, I was able to start with the, the first sentence of the book, which was the question of what do media do? And um, focusing on the action or the activity of media rather than what they are was something that naturally came about because um, media was really a kind of a process, right? as the book um, introduction defined. And um, yeah, so that was a, a kind of a main sticking point for me. And I felt like starting kind of just honestly with that research problem of not knowing um, whether or not I'm on the right track with writing on media because the term as such did not appear. Um, I think just being honest with the fact of such a simple sampling block was able to open up ways of thinking. And then after that, surprisingly, the the intro kind of flowed with the different pieces. So um, I tried uh, really as much as I could in the introduction to open with as concrete an example as I could um, while... Um, slowly making my way after that into the kind of more theoretical discourse. But I know consistently throughout writing the many versions of the introduction that this kind of schism or, you know, cleft between theory and history was going to be called out. And I, of course, the readers of the book uh, manuscript, you know, asked me to explain that and I expected that kind of um, response and I continue to expect that question. I think as um, 
anyone working in area studies who is engaging with theory, you know, um, have to confront that question several times in a lifetime. So, yeah. So I think, you know, in a way I was anticipating that kind of uh, response all the while writing this intro. So since you bring it up yourself, perhaps you could say a little bit more about this question um, and help us also understand, uh, you know, in the context of this historical time period, which is really a fascinating one. And as you said, the Nuting history has brought new attention to it. Um, but what you're doing is really introducing us to an array of texts that include, of course, novels, novels that are relatively understudied because often untranslated, sort of unwieldy, um, but also a whole collection of other types of media items. So yeah, if you could, if you could um, perhaps use some of those concrete examples, which you do so, so wonderfully. And I think it, that really helps, uh, for example, students who are coming to your book, understand, you know, what it is that you're talking about uh, and, and connect that to this discussion of history, theory, uh, area studies, media studies, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Thank you. I will try. <laughs> so you know, the, the Stone in the Wireless is really um, an attempt at uh, media history as well as a kind of theorization of the late Qing uh, period through media. So I think at, at its core, it tries very, um, whether or not it succeeds remains to be seen, to integrate theory with history into part of what media does. So... If, if I can give um, yet one more definition of media, it's simply that media mediate, right? And mediation is really this process that is both technological and cultural. This is why the root of that word really can't be claimed entirely by media studies. It really has a longer tradition in um, cultural mediation, right? Which is why Raymond Williams is such a big, important figure of the book really. So um, given that, you know, mediation has been used by Marxists and, you know, um, cultural historians and cultural studies of different schools for the longest time, um, and this is not to say anyone claims or have the ultimate say on uh, mediation, but also just that it is always a kind of wrestle between cultural and technological forms. And I see that tension play out so rigorously um, in the late Qing writers whom I study that they, without, of course, having um, recourse to all the vocabulary, uh, let alone, you know, in English, was also grappling with the same issue. So in in my entire study or experience reading Lei Qing literature, um, you know, that very um, misunderstood but also cliche slogan of the um, self-strengthening movement um, still features very prominently in this book. Um, even though these, you know, reformers have nothing to do with media as a whole, but it's because the whole problem of East versus West uh, or China versus the West, which you can really sum up as defining late Qing history, was also a kind of theoretical and conceptual preview, if you like, of the kind of debates that 
later-day area studies confront, but also the debates that uh, media studies scholars confront, right, with regards to um, culture and technology. Now, having said so, I don't mean at all to suggest that theory versus history can be neatly mapped into or um, China versus the West or culture and technology, all these other synonymous terms that I use interchangeably for heuristics, they're all kind of historical, historically specific terms in their own right. But I think, in again, this is where we have to see how the actual writers use them. Um, in many ways, they do have this signifying chain effect, right, of standing for certain oppositional categories. So I feel like if it's the the essence, if there is an essence of late Qing culture history to really wrestle with the distinctions between what is considered as um, a base philosophy or a kind of primary way of thinking versus what can be applied or what can be simply seen as technical and mechanical, then this plays out in with huge ramifications of how we think of as media. Um, because it all depends on how that complete, how all that tension gets communicated, right? So um, I think one of the most concrete example that I, I would like to give, and this spills over perhaps to chapter one already, is when uh, Guo Saotong, the first Chinese ambassador to the UK, um, wrote about um, what, what has apparently been recorded as the first um, Chinese witness of the phonograph, right? Um, in his... Um, visit in or in his uh, tenure or his um, when he was the ambassador in Great Britain he apparently noted in his diary that he saw Thomas Edison demonstrate the phonograph and then he go on to describe how the phonograph worked and I you know go into his description in chapter one and because I found the technical explanation of what he was using, of course, through translations and by no means an expert of um, of uh, technology himself, he was making a lot of vague descriptions. But through his technical description, there was a certain overlap or ambivalence between the phonograph and the telephone because of the way that a uh, phonograph is translated as jishen qi and telephone is often just you know um, transliterated as de lui feng but also uh mainly using the verb chuan instead of ji right so this whole idea of something that gets recorded as the phonograph does versus something that gets transmitted as the telephone does without actually leaving a record then suddenly uh, a bear huge ramifications for the way in which Guo Tao's own diary had been seen as a kind of recording device of foreign experiences that was due to the kind of conflict of the court later ordered to be destroyed. So in a kind of censorship way. So the kind of, the way that historically his whole, um, 
enterprise of recording everything that he saw in Great Britain was thwarted by precisely his um, ambition to record everything that was good about the West that was suddenly seen to be anti-China. So anyway, this is a t- to, to, to be a very long-winded way of um, explaining how um, an example of how a machine that is recorded in text has ramifications of what the period might conceive of as media because the actual processes of recording gets, you know, um, thrown into the mix, right? Or rather is complicated by that uh, recording device. So it's the constant kind of friction between the medium and the message as, as the cliche goes that I'm fascinated with throughout the book. Uh, wonderful. Thank you for your answer to that. And um, in, in so doing, you also bring up uh, two terms of the f- three terms, really, that frame your book, which um, can help us move into um, the parts uh, of the body. So first we have D or recording, um, and then this binomial or, or binary pair of uh, chuan or zhuan, right? Um, transmission that that works as the as you say, like the the mediator of your book that connects between ji and um, uh, tong, right? Which is interconnectivity. So I have to say, I really I really enjoyed your reading of um, this diplomat who ha- who functions who is both a telephone and a phonograph himself in some ways. So um, yeah, um, if you could tell us a little bit more about this trio of protagonists with whom you start the book, uh, who are, like you say, they're writing records. Um, They are themselves cultural mediators. Um, And in particular, what was interesting to me was the way in which they reconceptualize one or writing um, as an inscriptive practice that is not necessarily linked to writing itself or writing in the conventional way that it has been understood. Yeah, thank you. So I was able to compare and contrast uh, Guo Sun Tao and his whole delegation um, because, uh, well, ironically, their, their diaries were very well recorded, right? And some translated, in fact. So um, I was also able to use their diaries and my comparing of the diaries to... Um, reflect on the ways in which media functions may or may not correspond with ideological positions. So what I mean by that is um, Guo Songtao may seem to be the most pro-Western and liberal and therefore progressive um, recorder compared to his colleagues. Um, but um the other sources that was I was looking at in the same chapter by no means gave a, a more kind of a boring version of media, right? So, so that was one way that I thought recording kind of had its after effects, meaning you can't just ascribe a kind of ideology to a record because of the um, author's uh, political position. I mean, that may seem very um, self-apparent as well, but I also wanted to push back against conventional readings of Beijing writers according to whether they are progressive and pro-Western, therefore pro-technology, versus though they are more 
those that are more conservative. So that's one kind of uh, agenda of that chapter. Um, yeah, so recording rec- or recorders was came very um, naturally as I was finishing up this particular chapter because of the way in which um, the scribe or the diplomat was, as you mentioned, trying to find the precise language to describe what they were seeing in the West. And for especially Zhang Deyi and Guo Songtao, who did not know English, um, that was particularly difficult, right? So um, the way that translation and the way that they reconceived one was um, really kind of ingenuous in many accounts, especially how, for example, Guo Songtao will... um, very poetically write about the way that uh, the light comes in through the glass palace that he sees while he was in um, is there, was the glass palace in UK, Britain or was it in Russia not sure yeah, I, I believe the Crystal Palace was Crystal in England. Palace in England, yes. that's right. Not the yeah. glass, thank you. Yeah, so as he was, yeah, even in a scenario where there was nothing about technology, the way that he was writing about the light coming through the uh, the glass and the way that language could not fully capture how the light was being shone through that, you know, um, that was that in itself was worth pondering. So, you know, obviously very kind of erudite um, accounts of um, language in the travel diaries of the time. Um, that's that's pretty commonly found. But I think for um, someone like Wilson Tao who set out in at the head of the st- head of the diary to emphasize that he has to really record everything that he sees. I think that the way that he uses one becomes even more prominent and um, important for my purpose. Uh, great. Um, I, I'm really fascinated with the way in which these records of actual historical personages then interplay with chapter two which it sounds like chapter two is one of the uh, two pieces of your dissertation that were in fact saved <laughs> for this book. Um, so perhaps the more conventional chapter in so far as we, t- we think about someone coming from a literature background, right? Um, you're writing here about Wu Jianren's uh, novel, The New Story of the Stone, um, a very fascinating text that ha- has perhaps gotten a little bit less attention in in the history of Chinese literature um, than it should have. Um, in, of course, knowing that uh, there is a sort of prejudice towards a later period of literature as what is conceived of as modern. Um, but in particular, I'm interested in in hearing what you have to say about. Um, the sort of uh, material metaphor here that we have, which is a term also that comes up in chapter one. Um, But the idea of the stone, right, and lithography, as well as the circulation of various forms of print media, um, records, but also kind of scraps, right, of essentially scraps that point towards this bustling infrastructure of modern China and then how that is translated into the utopian realm in this novel. 
So sorry, that's a big question, but um, please feel free to address it however you'd like. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's a really rich, really rich one. Yeah, you mentioned material metaphors. So of course, you know, Kate Hill's work has uh, been truly, truly illuminating in that regard. And so has, uh, for, for this chapter, you know, the kind of scholars working on cybernetics and neo-cybernetics were actually, um, you know, at, at, between every line. So again, uh, I was trying to bring um, a kind of very much, you know, mid 20th century discourse or scholarship into a much earlier period and set in China of all places. But I think Xin Shi Doji, as you say, is such a, um, needs to be studied more just because as a representative and actually one of the few, you know, science fictional or utopian works that are completed um, in its entire 40, 41 chapters is remarkable just because it really faithfully as a lot of um, didactic fiction of its time tries to document Jia Baoyu's adventures, right? In a way that really explains why it's been overlooked. Because frankly, it was just very tedious. And as somebody who read the novel many, many, many times, um, it was only with this very, very late rewrite that I truly noted and paid attention to all the kind of ephemeral or the little scripts of paper that was um, present in the first part of the book and realizing how little information really was present in the utopian half of the book after the protagonist stepped into utopia. So um, there is a kind of um, doggedness with which I was pursuing these material metaphors. And I think one of the... um, arguments and um, theory that I was also engaging with in the introduction was this aspect of literal reading, right? So um, in chapter two, I remember one of um, the comment com- uh, readers of the book, you know, comments on my, you know, very stubborn reading of the an episode where Jia Baoyu was discussing how to bring books back after visiting the bookstore. And there will be so many books. Uh, there are only three people. How can they possibly carry all this back home? And that went on for like two pages, right? But that was enough for me to um, be curious and kind of I attempted a very literal reading of the cards, right? And Wen Yi Zai Dao and all the issues of the vehicle versus the actual knowledge that the book stood for. So episodes like that, but also just um, simply following quite literally how um, media documents get approached and communicated in Xi Shitoji. And of course, you know, Shitoji and the many scholarship on the kind of uh, Cao Xueqing original versus the Wu Jianran rewrite has so much of a historical relay. And um, the way that the stone um, is featured both as an inscribing device, but also as a metafictional historical um, material that was indispensable for the Shanghai media sphere, um, just to me was um, calling to be studied. So 
um, yeah, so the stone really was, um, and then when it came to, of course, choosing the title of the book, I knew the stone had to be definitely uh, there somewhere. Speaking of the stone, um, it also is in a, it featured prominently in the very provocative cover, which we have, again, um, I've noticed the past two interviews that I've done have been with Duke authors, so I have to say that it's, it's quite a boon for them, um, your work, and also the work that they've been gathering in, in terms of their Chinese media studies, and, and they've done such a great job of presenting these books in unconventional and exciting ways. And I think that 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 certainly speaks to the content of your book, too, if we want to talk a little bit about um, the vehicle (laughs) and the content. Um, Yeah, so I one of the one of the things that um, I that really stood out to me in this chapter is the discussion of Dian Shijai, which is, of course, the um, pictorial uh, using that use lithography, right, to illustrate China's encounter with with Western modernity, uh, and in particular, the image that that you focus on and that you give a beautiful close reading of, which is the sort of meta medial or meta fictional um, illustration of of their studio, right, of the uh, stone workers, <laughs> um, which actually could lead us into a discussion a little bit later that you you bring up again towards the end of your book about labor. But if you could just tell tell our listeners a little bit about this image and and your reading of it, um, and this provocative combination, right, of um, the pre-modern or early modern stone and then lithography. Thank you, thank you for um, yeah capturing that reading so well. Yeah, so the um, the image that Julia was uh, describing. Uh, for those of you who have not seen it, is really prominent in its very grid-like structure, right? So it, you know, on a two-dimensional form, tries, of course, to capture the depth image of the studio in its large expanse, and um, each kind of unit of um, a working station, if you want to call it in modern terms, had, of course, the huge kind of lithographic press print. And um, so each grid almost seems like um, duplications of each other, right? Even though they're hand-drawn. So, of course, with Xing uh, Ji or reading Wu Jianren's Xing Ji is the whole tension between the original and the copy that's at stake. And so the grid-like duplicative um, mode of the image that appeared in Dian Shi Jai Hua Bao also captured that um, problem or tension between the original and the copy. And so that, that that's just one of the things that um, interests me about the image. And of course, the idea of work and human labor. I mean, accompanying that particular illustration uh, was this idea that lithography or in, in the text accompanying the um, image was this idea that uh, now with the printing press, uh, workers do not need to um, inscribe or at least the scribes don't have to work so hard, you know, in their manual work. Uh, instead, they can rely on the um, press to kind of uh, magically, you know, bring the words to life. So, of course, this is a kind of as a kind of advertisement um, was trying to promote the sheer efficiency of the uh, printing press versus the kind of uh, 
all the forms of uh, printing. And that's entirely contradicted by the workers that were in the illustration, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I think we see this, um, (laughs) even now, we see this uh, really exaggeration of the reduction of labor that's promised by machinery, uh, let alone AI and all that. So, which, of course, I return to in the conclusion. But yeah, I am deeply, deeply invested in the work of media and the, the actual work that goes into mediation, and which is why for Xin Shidoji, it was very, very important to pay attention to the bureaucratic labor that the scribe or the role of the scribe played by kind of the utopian guide of the novel, uh, Lao Shaonian played, right? As he rushed to get paper and copy out um, the book in hand, which of course Tao Xuanqing's original also has in the form of the monk. But anyway, I think the work of writing is um, something that, yeah, I, I want to underscore throughout uh, The Stone and the Wireless. Uh, yeah, that was that was certainly one of the the standout moments uh, I think uh, in that chapter for me, um, and a way of bringing out what is rendered invisible or what is rendered um, what is utilized right for other ends, which also brings us to this chapter three, a chapter that you've you've mentioned already is the chapter which um, engages the most with affect theory, but it does so through the figure of the the medium the female medium right the um feminine mediation and the affective techniques perhaps of femininity um so if you could tell us a little bit use use this moment perhaps to to transition us from the first to to the second part of your book um uh, as it does you know in the text itself um and introduce the 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 female characters um both mediated by men and mediated by by women that that play the main main role here um, in this chapter. Yeah, thank you. So, if the first two chapters of the book that are grouped under G or the record, you know, pay attention to the way that male authorities could record and uh, claim to be authorities of record. Um, obviously, there's a um, important gender issue that I really, you know, after now that the book is out, still feel like I I need to um, return to study more. So the third chapter, if, if I can say so, I mean, this is like, what is your favorite book or favorite song or favorite artist is an impossible one, but I really have a special feeling. Uh, let's just call it that for the third chapter, just because I think it's like the middle child that really should have gotten more, you know? So, um, Chuan was the um, kind of uh, a word for the third chapter as a kind of bridge, as a kind of connector, but also as a kind of life writing in the form of Chuan. And life writing has um, such a heavily gendered or pedagogical, gendered pedagogy, right, as a kind of instructional genre to inform women how to behave. And that has, you know, a a long scholarship, which I don't have to go into. I think in terms of uh, practical aspect, uh, pragmatic aspects, the way that chapter two links with chapter three is also because there was a... a kind of a 
a female assassin version of Shi Toji that I mentioned at the end of chapter two. That was written by a male author that was in a way very kind of exploitation kind of um, fiction with the female assassins simply sacrificing themselves left, right, and center for the Chinese nation, right? And of course, that that strain of Chinese feminism has been um, heavily criticized as well. So I really wanted to um, not just have the the problem of female sacrifice as um, uh, a conclusion to one chapter, but make it the heart of its own chapter. And so the idea of uh, women as medium, but also whether women can have a relationship to media in a way that is simply not um, for the ends of the nation state. So the means and end or the Wen Yi Zai Dao question is always there, right? So women as vehicles, but also women using vehicles, to put it crudely, uh, women using or thinking about technology in the way they they communicate. Not to say that men writing about women cannot offer an authentic, you know, feminist um, experience, but just really let's look at how uh, media has this gendered aspect. I think on this note, it's also crucial that um, so much of Anglo-American and European uh, media history have picked up on the gendered aspects of um, documents, right, and history. And um, the falling cabinet has a gendered element, the secretary, and of course, the typist, the typewriter. So as I was um, learning about media history from... Um, North American and European context, I was also wondering the same about China. Um, I think we, it is true that in the same period, we just don't have that um, rich of um, an archive. I think Tom Mullaney's kind of amazing work on the Chinese typewriter is the um, closest and the most kind of... Uh, exemplary mode of archival work on Chinese media history that could really afford to go into the kind of the workers and the kind of uh, different uh, persona. And of course, there's the language reform. But um, with all these different archives, I have yet to encounter a truly gendered aspect with regards to early Chinese media history it remains very male-dominated for many interesting reasons that I think spill over into the history of capitalism, right, and industrialization. So, yeah, I mean, the ch- this chapter, I um, was really very much driven by this comparative archival question, and I was lucky enough to... Um, not have to be burdened by having to find a comparative archive, but rather was able to ask the question of women's relationship technology on its own terms with um, through poetry, um, which uh, turned out to be a fruitful exercise and was really fun. Uh, absolutely. Um, and one of the figures, uh, well, there are two main texts, I suppose, in this chapter, right? You have the new poetry, uh, which is the, written in the in, in relation to this kind of classical male figure writing about the female figure desiring the missing male figure um and then also the the woman herself who's um Chiu Jin in this case the very uh infamous 
revolutionary. So for readers who are interested in that in that chapter and also a sort of thinking through of not only poetry, but also photography and the relationship between these two media, I, I really recommend that chapter. Um, I think your special feeling comes through uh, about it. It's, it's, a, it's a really uh, lovely read. Um, and as you say, it's also a chapter that um, resonated very strongly with some of the most interesting writing about um, gender and media that we've come across uh, recently. Um, but in the interest of, of moving forward, unfortunately, we only have about 15 minutes left and we have two more chapters to deal with. Um, and I really want to talk about those, of course, because they form the the last part of your book, right? The tongue, the, the interconnectivity. Um, and chapter four uh, was especially striking to me because I was thinking of it in terms of another novel by uh, Wu Jianran, of course, the author you treat in chapter two, which is The Sea of Regret or Henhai, uh, which is a novel that documents uh, the the sort of the mysteriousness and the the lack of information that that characterizes the Boxer Rebellion, which is, of course, also one of the most me- heavily mediated crises of modern history. Um, so if you could introduce us a little bit to uh, the boxers, the telegraphs, and the sort of infrastructural conundrum that that the the Chinese court, the Chinese uh, rebels, and then of course the the Western powers find themselves in at this uh, crucial moment in late Qing history. Thank you. Yeah, so I I knew I wanted to take an infrastructural approach to. Um, the Boxer Rebellion, and I knew that um, I this chapter was was going to be a little different. In so far as I was also really working with um, uh, Western sources, right, or looking at um, American photography of the period, so it wasn't going to be fully um, Chinese, and that really brings out the international aspect of the crisis. I. Um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Heng Hai or Sea of Regret because I wanted to write about it in the early version of the dissertation where I was heavily invested in the way that secrecy um, operated in literature and it stems from my long, weird um, childhood fascination with secret societies and the triads. So um, the boxes, of course, you know, uh, originated as a kind of secret society and um, has very much um, the, the, the modern kind of uh, criminal syndicates indeed have its roots in all these revolutionary moments in China. So the Boxer Rebellion was always something that I pay attention to and the way in which um, gossips were overheard um, between the protagonists in Heng Hai was something that deeply fascinated me. Uh, the way that the walls were thin and you could overhear um, you know, um, secrets and it changed the you know, whole turn of events but also if i remember you know the protagonist in sea of regret was having trouble getting transport throughout his whole you know uh, adventure right having his mother sick and all that so while trying to get to his uh, betrothed so this just a uh, entire breakdown and um a failure was was definitely a very foundational aspect of um Wujianren's novel. So when it came to, even though that you know fell out of the project entirely and the whole project shifted, um, I think the Boxer Rebellion remained that catastrophic you know um, episode that 
um, I knew had to be part of the stone and the wireless. So I found it just um, amazing on its own account that telegraphs were being sent about uh, the breakdown of telegraphy at at various notes of the Qing, you know, kind of uh, court, and that so many kind of innovative ways of sending messages uh, continue to persist, uh, just like uh, you send, uh, you get someone to ride a horse horseback for days and nights, and then go to the next station that hasn't been bombed to send the telegraph, right? So this combination of old and new media was very much a means of survival for the court. Um, I was fascinated with photographs that captured the breakdown and what that literally meant. And of course, then the interaction between the visual and the textual was at the fore. So, and um, not to mention the ways in which the, if not for the boxes destruction or rumors of their attempted destruction, because a lot of it is actually overplayed, um, of telegraph poles, the Boxer Rebellion would have looked and sounded very different. Um, It's just, you know, one of those um, historical uh, events that really can't be faked. (laughs) So, yeah. Wonderful. Actually, as I was uh, as I was reading this chapter, um, another book in a very different context came to mind that will perhaps be interesting to you and our listeners. Um, also, is um, Wired into Nature: The Telegraph and the North American Frontier. And in that book, the author actually deals with the the way in which uh, Native Americans are also interacting with the telegraph in um, incredibly media savvy ways. Um, so, so there's there's a lot to be done in the field of uh, media theory and telegraphy in, in, uh, in comparative studies as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you for, yeah, I would definitely check that out. I think, yeah. Um, religion and ethnicity is definitely something that needs to be explored further in the Chinese context. Um, well, we look forward to your future work perhaps uh, on that subject. Um, but finally, uh, if we can turn to your last chapter and perhaps treat both the last chapter and the conclusion as a pair, since they, they really do speak to each other. Um, in, instead of the wired, now we are moving to the wireless and to this very fascinating image in a novel by Xun Yanzi, which is um, the new tales of um, Mr. Braggadocio, who is um, a very strange and fascinating protagonist of a science fiction novel who, who figures out how to, uh, make electricity with his brain and then and then teach this practice and um, build a sort of enormous network of of these brain electrically educated folks. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit about the the image of um, the wireless brain, but also circle back to our earlier discussion, a little bit of labor, and then think through how that, late Tsing novel is actually resonating very strongly with very contemporary Chinese science fiction. Yeah. So as somebody who, as I mentioned, deeply influenced by Raymond Williams and uh, Marxism in general, um, of course, I wasn't trying to insert Marxism in an unwieldy fashion into the book. But 
the this chapter and the ending of Xing Falo Xianshen Tan or New Tales of Mr. Braggadocio is simply um I would say uh, a Marxist critic's kind of uh, dream come alive, right? The way that the very short story ends so enigmatically on unemployment and the laboring masses and the communication industry is just entirely prescient for something written over 1905, 1906, right? Albeit in Shanghai, but at a time where, you know, um, industry was really um, limited to certain, you know, heavy manufacturing sectors. So for um, for a novel or short story uh, that really premises itself for interconnectivity, but ends with the ultimate... Uh, or, or at least most radical form of um, interruption, which is the contradiction between capital and labor. I think it forces us to reconceptualize what is connectivity and media in a very, very Marxist materialist lens, which of course is not very fashionable for Chinese studies in this particular juncture, right? Um nor is it even very fashionable in media studies. But as you mentioned, I mean, no sci-fi writer right now um, from the Chinese language world, or at least um, very few Chinese sci-fi writers are forgetting that the crisis driving, you know, post-socialist China is really this contradiction between capital and labor. So um, I feel like the kind of um, amazing way in which uh, which Xun Yanzi ended his novel with the conclusion just forces us to reevaluate, or forces me to reevaluate all the other moments in which labor fails to make a prominent appearance in my analysis. And so it was only natural befitting that I continue thinking about the Snow and the Wireless in the conclusion, in its contemporary form, in um, the kind of crisis mode of production that China faces right now. So Chen Chou-Fan's Huang Chao, The Waste Tide, was uh, something that I had the fortune to read and uh, also read in its uh, translation and workshopped it um, in a Chinese sci-fi symposium. And, you know, the novel is really, really critical of... um, the ecological costs of uh, China's, um, you know, rise in on the world stage, but also the kind of um, the labor crisis, right, with the migrant population and the huge in- income inequality. So, but nonetheless, for a novel that is so socially kind of conscious and ecologically conscious, um, it was deeply problematic of the way in which the female protagonist is written and the way in which. Um, uh, fascinating ways in which religion and actually ethnicity also is brought into the fold. So, you know, without um, wanting the conclusion to be, a, you know, a separate chapter into contemporary science fiction per se, I uh, wanted to kind of accentuate the problem of medium and the problem of uh, the means and relationship 
in uh, my final reading, but also to accentuate the kind of human costs of um, media and mediation, despite the title of my book, you know, uh, and the cover, including the cover resembling a very kind of uh, uh, post-humanist way of reading, right? So I was trying to bring all these different issues and um, kind of talk about equality and inequality in media too. Yeah, it's a really wonderful conclusion that I think brings up, um, brings in various threads that have been woven throughout the book um, and and positions us to think about them in this new post-socialist Chinese setting. Um, And of course, this brings us also to the end of our interview. um, But the beginning of a new quest, which is, of course, your next project. And I would love to hear from you about what that project is and how it interacts with um, what you have written here. Yeah, so it's the new project is uh, a jump ahead to contemporary China. Um, and it's provisionally something along the title, along the lines of outsmarting a little red manual. Uh, which, you know, really examines the CCP's digital governance under its accelerator-in-chief, Xi Jinping, and how under Xi, the kind of authoritarian know-how of the government uh, tries to merge with the kind of uh, design speak of the how-to, right, in therefore the play on the manual. Um, I argue this, the know-how merges with the how-to just because so much of the kind of made in China 2025, so much of the investment in digital technologies really, really um, is a kind of um, program in planetary computation. And this is kind of the, you know, the natural mix stage of uh, media analysis that I think the various chapters that we just talked about um, have analyzed. And I think the question that um, contemporary Chinese studies or critics of um, the CCP, especially from the outside, I think we're all wrestling with the issue of um, the dialectics of um, oppression and resistance, right? And I think it's... um, a common dilemma to say that while the Chinese netizens have their own form of resistance that may or may not conform to a Western liberal narrative, and many scholars have made that argument. And so I'm still trying to figure out the answer to that. But one thing's for sure is that um, as the Chinese government attempts to outsmart a global crisis like the pandemic and local resistance is also in a state of involution or a kind of burnout, right? So the kind of constant back and forth between the CCP and um, citizen resistance is really like an interrelated feedback loop. Um, And therefore, my interest in cybernetics from um, the first project comes back. Um, So what the the book really aspires to do is to look at... uh, interconnected but also sometimes not very connected issues so like the Uyghur genocide um, in in line with the CCP's investment in the Belt and Road Um, you have um, this discourse of alternative energies but also indigeneity and the borderlands Um, so trying to connect these different kind of ecological political and 
digital issues. That's that's what I have planned. But yeah, we'll see how that goes. In well, I'm looking forward to it already. It sounds very fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning for me and evening for you to talk about your book. Um, I think our readers will enjoy it. So I I really recommend that they do get their hands on a copy. Um, And until your next book, I guess uh, I'll see you then. (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to see you and uh, love to hear from anyone who has any questions. Thank you for your time. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay.